Chapter 8 of The Pursuit of the Houseboat by John Hendrick Bangs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 On Board the Gehenna. When the Gehenna had passed down the Styx and out through the beautiful Sumerian harbor into the broad waters of the ocean, and everything was comparatively safe for a while at least. Sherlock Holmes came down from the bridge where he had taken his place as the commander of the expedition at the moment of departure. His brow was furrowed with anxiety, and through his massive forehead his brain could be seen to be throbbing violently, and the corrugations of his grey matter were not pleasant to witness, as he tried vainly to squeeze an idea out of them. "'What is the matter?' asked Demosthenes anxiously. "'We are not in any danger, are we?' "'No.' replied holmes but i am somewhat puzzled at the bubbles on the surface of the ocean and the ripples which we crossed over an hour or two ago barely perceptible through the most powerful microscopes indicate to my mind that for some reason at present unknown to me the houseboat has changed her course take that bubble floating by it is the last expiring bit of aerial agitation of the houseboat's wake observe whence it comes not from the Azores quarter, but as if instead of steering straight course thither, the houseboat had taken a sharp turn to the north-east and was making for harbour, or in other words, Paris instead of London seems to have become their destination. Demosthenes looked at Holmes with blank amazement, and to keep from stammering out the exclamation of wonder that rose to his lips, he opened his bonbonnier and swallowed a pebble. You don't happen to have a cocaine tablet in your box do you queried holmes no returned the greek cocaine makes me flighty and nervous but these pebbles sort of ballast me and hold me down how on earth do you know that that bubble comes from the wake of the houseboat by my chemical knowledge merely replied holmes a merely worldly vessel leaves a phosphorescent bubble in its wake that one we have just discovered is not so but sulphurescent if I may coin a word which it seems to me that the English language is very much in need of. It proves, then, that the bubble is a portion of the wake of a Stygian craft, and the only Stygian craft that has cleared the Sumerian harbour for years is the houseboat, Q.E.D. We can go back until we find the ripple again and follow that, I presume, sneered Lecoq, who did not take much stock in the theories of his great rival largely because he was a detective by intuition rather than by study of the science. You can if you want to, but it is better not to, rejoined Holmes, simply, as though not observing the sneer, because the ripple represents the outer line of the angle of disturbance in the water, and as any one of the sides to an angle is greater than the perpendicular from the hypotenuse to the apex, you'd be merely going the wrong way. This is especially important when you consider the formation of the bow of the houseboat, which is rounded like the stern of most vessels, and comes near to making a pair of ripples at an angle of ninety degrees. Then, observed Sir Walter with a sigh of disappointment, we must change our course and sail for Paris. I am afraid so, said Holmes, but of course it's by no means certain as yet. I think if Columbus would go up to the mizzen-top and look about him, he might discover something either in confirmation 
or refutation of the theory. He couldn't discover anything, put in Pinzon. He never did. Well, I like that, retorted Columbus. I'd like to know who discovered America. So should I, observed Leif Erikson with a wink at Vespucci. Tut, retorted Columbus. I did it, and the world knows it, whether you claim it or not. Yes, just as Noah discovered Ararat, replied Pinzon. You sat upon the deck until we ran plumb into an island after floating about for three months, and then you couldn't tell it from a continent even when you had it right before your eyes. Noah might just as well have told his family he discovered a roof garden as for you to go back to Spain telling them all that San Salvador was the United States. Well, I don't care, said Columbus with a short laugh. I'm the one they celebrate, so what's the odds? I'd rather stay down here in the smoking room enjoying a small game, anyhow, than climb up that mast and strain my eyes for ten or a dozen hours looking for evidence to prove or disprove the correctness of another man's theory. I wouldn't know evidence when I saw it, anyhow. Then Judge Blackstone. I draw the line at the mizzen top, observed Blackstone. The dignity of the bench must and shall be preserved, and I'll never consent to climb up that rigging, getting pitched and paint on my ermine, no matter who asks me to go. Whomsoever I tell to go shall go, put in Holmes firmly. I am commander of this ship. It will pay you to remember that, Judge Blackstone. And I am the Court of Appeals, retorted Blackstone hotly. Bear that in mind, Captain, when you try to send me up. I'll issue a writ of habeas corpus on my own body and commit you for contempt. There's no use of sending the judge anyhow, said Raleigh, fearing by the glitter that came into the eye of the commander that trouble might ensue unless pacificatory measures were resorted to. He's accustomed to weighing everything carefully and cannot be rushed into a decision. If he saw any evidence, he'd have to sit on it a week before reaching a conclusion. What we need here more than anything else is an expert seaman, a lookout, and I nominate Shev. He sailed under his father, and I have it on good authority that he is a nautical expert. Holmes hesitated for an instant. He was considering the necessity of disciplining the recalcitrant Blackstone, but finally yielded. Very well, he said, Shem be it. Bosun, pipe Shem on deck and tell him that General Order Number One requires him to report at the mizzen top right away, and that immediately he sees anything, he shall come below and make it known to me. As for the rest of us, having a very considerable appetite, I do now decree that it is dinner time. Shall we go below? I don't think I care for any, thank you, said Raleigh. Fact is, I dined last week, and I'm not hungry. Noah laughed. Oh, come below and watch us eat, then, he said. It'll do you good. But there was no reply. Raleigh had plunged headfirst into his stateroom, which fortunately happened to be on the upper deck. The rest of the spirits repaired below to the saloon, where they were soon engaged in an animated discussion of such viands as the larder provided. This, said Dr. Johnson from the head of the table, is what I call comfort. I don't know that I am so anxious to recover the houseboat after all. Nor I, said Socrates, with a ship like this to go off cruising on and with such a larder. Look at the thickness of that puree, doctor. Excuse me, said Boswell faintly, but I I've left my note book up stairs, doctor, and I'd like to go up and get it. 
certainly, said Dr. Johnson. I judge from your color, which is highly suggestive of a modern magazine poster, that it might be well, too, if you stayed on the deck for a little while and made a few entries in your commonplace book. Thank you, said Boswell gratefully. Shall you say anything clever during dinner, sir? If so, I might be putting it down while I'm up. Get out, roared the doctor. Get up as high as you can. Get up with Shem on the mizzen top. Very good, sir, replied Boswell, and he was off. You ought to be more lenient with him, doctor, said Bonaparte. He means well. I know it, observed Johnson, but he's so very creepy. Last winter, at Chaucer's dinner to Burns, I made a speech, which Boswell printed a week before it was delivered, with the words laughter and uproarious applause interspersed through it. It placed me in a false position. How did he know what you were going to say? queried Demosthenes. Don't know, replied Johnson. Kind of mind reader, I fancy, he added, blushing a trifle. But, Captain Holmes, what do you deduce from your observation of the wake of the houseboat? If she's going to Paris, why the change? I have two theories, replied the detective. Which is always safe, said Lecoq. Always. It doubles your chances of success, acquiesced Holmes. Anyhow, it gives you a choice, which makes it more interesting. The change of her course from London words to Paris words proves to me either that he is not satisfied with the extent of the revenge he has already taken, and wishes to ruin you gentlemen financially by turning your wives, daughters, and sisters loose on the Parisian shops, or that the pirates have themselves been overthrown by the ladies who have decided to prolong their cruise and get some fun out of their misfortune. And where else than to Paris would anyone in search of pleasure go? asked Bonaparte. I had more fun a few miles outside Brussels, said Wellington, with a sly wink at Washington. Oh, let up on that, retorted Bonaparte. What if you beat me at Waterloo? You couldn't have beaten me at the plain ordinary game of old maid with a sacked pack of cows, much less in the game of war, if you hadn't had the elements with you. Tut, snapped Wellington. It was clear science laid you out, Boney. Faisez-vous, shouted the irate Corsican science be hanged. Wet science was what did it. If it hadn't been for the rain, my little duke, I should have been in London within a week. My grenadiers would have been camping in your rue Piccadilly, and the old gals all over everywhere else. You must have had a gay army then, laughed Caesar. What are French soldiers made of that they can't stand the wet? Unshrunk linen or flannel? Ah, observed Napoleon, shrugging his shoulders and walking a few paces away. You do not understand the French. The Frenchman is not a male soldier like you, woman. He is the poet of the arms. He does not go in for glory, the expense of his dignity. Style, form is dearer to him than honor, and he has no use for fighting in the wet and coming out of the fight conspicuous as a victor with the curl out of his feathers and his epaulets rusted with the damp. There is no glory in water. If we had had umbrellas and mackintoshes, as every Englishman who comes to the continent always has, and a bathtub for everybody, then would your Waterloo have been different again, and the great democracy of Europe with a Bonaparte for emperor would have been founded for what the Americans call the heat. And as for your little Great Britain, ha! 
she would have become the Black Whale's Island of the Greater Fall. Your romance is funny as punch, isn't? drawled Wellington with an angry gesture at Bonaparte. You weren't within telephoning distance of victory all day. We simply played with you, my boy. It was a regular game of golf for us. We let you keep up pretty close and win a few holes, but on the home drive we had you beaten in one stroke. Go to, my dear Bonaparte, and stop talking about the flood. It's a lucky thing for us that Noah wasn't a Frenchman, eh? said Frederick the Great. How that rain would have faced him if he had been. The human race would have been wiped out. Oh, pshaw, ejaculated Noah, deprecating the unseemliness of the quarrel, and putting his arm affectionately about Bonaparte's shoulder. When you come down to that, I was French, as French as one could be in those days, and these Gallic subjects of my French here were, every one of them, my lineal descendants, and their hatred of rain was inherited directly from me, their ancestor. Are not we English as much your descendants? queried Wellington, arching his eyebrows. You are, said Noah, but you take after Mrs. Noah more than after me. Water never phases a woman, and your delight in tubs is an essentially feminine trait. The first thing Mrs. Noah carried aboard was a laundry outfit, and then she went back for rugs and coats and all sorts of hand baggage. God, it makes me laugh to this day when I think of it. She looked for all the world like an Englishman traveling on the continent. She walked up the gangplank behind the elephants, each elephant with a gladstone bag in his trunk and a hat box tied to his tail. Here, the venerable old weather prophet winked at Munchausen, and the little quarrel, which had been imminent, passed off in a general laugh. Where's Boswell? He ought to get that anecdote, said Johnson. I've locked him up in the library, said Holmes. He's in charge of the log, and as I have a pretty good general idea as to what is about to happen, I have mapped out a skeleton of the plot and set him to work writing it up. Here the detective gave a sudden start, placed his hand to his ear, listened intently for an instant, and, taking out his watch and glancing at it, added quietly, In three minutes, Shem will be in here to announce a discovery and one of great importance, I judge, from the squeak. The assemblage gazed earnestly at Holmes for a moment. The squeak, queried Raleigh. Precisely, said Holmes. The squeak is what I said, and as I always say what I mean, it follows logically that I meant what I said. I heard no squeak, observed Dr. Johnson, and furthermore I fail to see how a squeak, if I had heard it, would have portended a discovery of importance. It would not, to you, said Holmes, but with me it is different. My hearing is unusually acute. I can hear the dropping of a pin through a stone wall ten feet thick. Any sound within a mile of my eardrums vibrates thereon with an intensity which would surprise you, and it is by the use of cocaine that I have acquired this wonderfully acute sense, a property which dulls the senses of most people renders mine doubly apprehensive. Therefore, gentlemen, while to you there was no auricular disturbance, to me there was. I heard Shem sliding down the mast a minute since, the fact that he slid down the mast instead of climbing down the rigging showed that he was in great haste. Therefore, he must have something to communicate of great importance. Why isn't he here already, then? It wouldn't take him two minutes to get from the deck here, asked the ever-auspicious Lecoq. It is simple, returned Holmes calmly. If you 
go yourself and slide down that mask, you will see. Shem had stopped for a little witch hazel to soothe his burns. It's no cool matter sliding down a mast of two hundred feet in height. As Sherlock Holmes spoke, the door burst open, and Shem rushed in. The signal of distress, Captain, he cried. From what quarter? To larboard? asked Holmes. No, returned Shem, breathless. Then it must be dead ahead, said Holmes. Why not starboard? asked Lecoque dryly. Because, answered Holmes confidently, it never happens so. If you had ever read a truly exciting sea tale, my dear Lecoque, you would have known that interesting things, and particularly signals of distress, are never seen except the larboard or dead ahead. A murmur of applause greeted this retort, and Lecoque subsided. The nature of the signal? demanded Holmes. A black flag skull and crossbones down at half mast, cried Shem, and on a rock bound coast. Then marooned by heaven, shouted Holmes, springing to his feet and rushing to the deck, where he was joined immediately by Sir Walter, Dr. Johnson, Bonaparte, and the others. Isn't he a daisy? whispered Demosthenes to Diogenes as they climbed the stairs. He's more than that, he's a blooming orchid said Diogenes with intense enthusiasm. I think I'll get my x-ray lantern and see if he's honest. End of chapter 8